leadership beyond a definition, the boundless potential to engage, to encourage, uplift, and guide, conversations about growth, leadership unscripted with Dr. Virginia Hardy. Welcome to Leadership Unscripted, Navigating Your Leadership Journey. I am your host, Virginia Hardy, and joining me today is my friend, my colleague, my mentor, my coach, and my sponsor, and yet my former boss, Dr. Steve Ballard. Dr. Ballard is ECU's former chancellor. He served from 2004 to 2016 as the sixth chancellor of the university and the 10th chief administrative officer of the school. During Dr. Ballard's tenure, student enrollment grew beyond 27,000, test scores for freshmen rose to record heights, and the campus achieved new levels of diversification. During Dr. Ballard's tenure, there were many accomplishments, the dental school, the new student center, and the beginning of the new bioscience building. As a keynote accomplishment of Dr. Ballard, he cast ECU as the leadership university. And to that end, he made sure that East Carolina cultivated leadership skills among its faculty, staff, and its students. We are very excited today to have Dr. Ballard with us. Thank you, Dr. Ballard, for joining us for this podcast. The pleasure is all mine. It's great to see you again. Uh, this university is uh, near and dear to my heart, so it's yes. good to be here. And you, um, even though you've been um, retired um, six years from the chancellorship, you've stayed around with ECU <laughs> in the BB&T Leadership Center. I was lucky enough, so they kept me around, which, is, <laughs> which has been a good thing. Um, I run the BB&T Leadership Center, which, as you know, is one of several leadership programs that tries to infuse leadership across the curriculum and across all the colleges. I think we've been reasonably successful, and I love working on that. And I teach a uh, uh, seminar to the Honors College of uh, sophomores and juniors primarily on leadership. It's called Becoming Tomorrow's Leaders, and uh, that is really fun. <laughs> yes, and actually having some one-on-one -on -one with students, uh, I know something you, you've always enjoyed, now you get to do it in a classroom. Yeah, and you know what? Uh, for 12 years, I loved it, but I didn't do enough of it, and now I'm getting um, yes. more opportunity. Great, <laughs> and so one of the things we wanna start off with is to say congratulations <laughs> on the new book, Great Leaders Are Great People, <laughs> By Stephen Curtis Ballard. <laughs> I like the, the Curtis in there. <laughs> I didn't want people to get confused over who really wrote that. So <laughs> thank you for recognizing that. Sure it was be. a long uh, process to get that out, and publication is uh, different than it ever was, but I'm really proud of that. That's a reflection on my best advice, uh, practical advice on how to be, a, how young people especially can be a good leader. Yeah. And so what would be your desire for the book now that it's published and out there? What is your desire? Who do you want to read this? Who do you, who's the target audience? Yeah, well, um, I addressed that in the foreword, but the primary target office uh, audience is young people or people just beginning a leadership journey. Uh, when I started my leadership journey, there wasn't much in the way of um, available material to go to because everybody that starts it, I think almost everybody asks the question, so how do I do that? Mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> it's not the easiest uh, question to answer. And I, I got some great answers, but primarily from people, from observations, mm -hmm. and from experiences, but not from reading or not from um, leadership coaches or a thousand things yeah. like that. So I wanted to try to fill a void that I believe is out there. Uh, part of the void is how do you do it practically? There's so much academic stuff and so much stuff from consultants, which I don't find very valuable. Right. So I wanted a practical guide. That's what the book's about. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wanted, to be, I wanted it to be based on experience. I wanted practical advice on how to do it and what not to do. There's as much in the book on what not to do, <laughs> probably, as there is what to do. Yes, great. Right, so we'll, we'll talk about the book throughout um, this time together okay. and, of course, talk about some of your own experiences and advice that you have for, for, uh, for young people coming into this thing called leadership. Good. I want to talk about you a lot. <laughs> that is off limits, by the way. No. <laughs> so you and I have talked a lot in, in, in our several years of being together around um, this notion of our leaders born 
or are they made? Mm -hmm. And I think you and I are in agreement mm -hmm. on this, but uh, but I've asked a lot of people this question, so I would love to get your take on, yeah. are they born or are they made? <laughs> they're made and they're, they're largely self-made or they're self-made with a lot of teaching, mentoring, and coaching. I've never found a, a label for a gene that lets mm -hmm. people be tomorrow's leader. And the simplistic uh, recommendations you get from the Harvard Business School and hundreds of other places about you have to be an extrovert or you have to be a man or you have mm -hmm. to be six foot five, yeah. uh, that's just pure nonsense. And it just doesn't work when you get down to public organizations, city councils, mm -hmm. federal agencies, universities. I mean, it just, the evidence is overwhelming. That's not the case. And the best writers in the field, Peter Drucker, Jim Collins, uh, are equally adamant that, <laughs> that it, you, you, they're just, there's, there's some anecdotal evidence, right. but there's as much contrary mm -hmm. evidence as there is positive evidence. So uh, because of that, I believe every young person or every person maybe that's had a failed experience or a difficult experience in leadership don't have to accept that as inevitable. They can get better, they can teach themselves, they can find mentors, uh, they can learn how to be a good leader. Mm -hmm. It's not rocket science, it's more about values and things. <laughs> so ironically, uh, just um, earlier uh, I met with some group of students in the Chancellor Student Leadership Academy and one of them talked about um, that she's very quiet and you know, considers herself to be an introvert, but everybody talks about how you need to be able to, to be out there and, and be social and be this. And she was wondering, can't you know, her question, can I be a good leader? And I thought about you actually <laughs> as I responded to her, but wanna get your take on that. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of uh, uh, applesauce being sold in those, <laughs> some of those uh, statements, yeah. and there's a lot of misperceptions. I'm fond of a book by Susan Cain that's called Quiet. Mm -hmm. um, I, don't, I forget the rest of it, but it's about being an introvert. Mm -hmm. When I read that book, I actually decided I was an ambivert. About half the time I like being an introvert, maybe more than half, yeah. and at other times I don't mind being an extrovert because when you get in a, uh, when you're the leader of a major public university, you can't hide. Mm -hmm. There are some times when only you can be there or when almost everybody expects you to be there. So you have to push yourself, but you know what? That's learnable. Mm -hmm. I had a student last year in my class who ultimately became the president of the Honors College Student Advisory Council. Her name was Allie. That's all I'll say at this point. And she came up to me after the first class and said, I am very uncomfortable talking in class because I made a big deal out of mm -hmm. uh, an important part of the class was being engaged in the class and she was worried that she couldn't do it. So I told her to relax and find ways to contribute. It, it, maybe that was sending an email to the class. Maybe it was giving me a reading, which she did frequently. Mm -hmm. By the end of the class, there wasn't anybody as good as she was or any better <laughs> in contributing to the class and right. speaking in class. So once she relaxed, she found mm -hmm. out that that was, uh, that was key. Yeah. But it's not your personality that determines the key things about how you build a university or a public agency. It's the people you get to work with you, your team. Mm -hmm. It's your values and character. Yeah. It's your willingness to focus on the things that really make a difference uh, and a lot of other things um, about what a good leader is about. But I, as far as I know, none of it's about whether what your personality type is. Mm -hmm. Having said that, <laughs> <laughs> yes. I would like to add that uh, I talk a lot in my talkings and <laughs> courses and uh, work about leadership demeanor and style. Mm -hmm. That's different than personality. Right. Uh, I, I think leaders uh, who are really successful pay a lot of attention to how others see them. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is a little bit maybe kind of uh, whether you're outgoing or ingoing or whatever, mm -hmm. but it has more to do with whether they trust you. Mm -hmm. And it has more to do with how they experience you. And it has more to, most to do, I think, with whether they find you helpful and honest uh, and reflective of reality and a whole bunch of other things. So I think gre really great leaders focus on how others see them. That's a, that's a form of emotional intelligence. It's really self-awareness and mm -hmm. social awareness. But people of all personality types can learn that. I learned a lot from a great North Carolinian named Bobby Brown. He's about 87 now. He lives in Greensboro. And he has a list of uh, about 11 or 12 values that his uh, grandmother Nellie taught him. And we all should l r read and learn uh, Nellie's list yeah. of values. But the most important uh, for me 
Bobby Brown said that if you want to lead people, if you want to make a difference, mm-hmm. if you want them to listen to you, be helpful. Mm-hmm. Be helpful. Man, it makes all the difference yes. in the world. Yeah. And it's so <laughs> simple, but so impactful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, That's right. So now, um, I was on your senior leadership team for yeah. many years and, uh, and truly was a pleasure. Uh, honestly, I learned a great deal <laughs> from watching you and then, of course, when you're <laughs> talking to me. And so I greatly appreciate all of that, um, that guidance. But one of the things you were very focused on with the true value for you and non-negotiable was having effective team. <laughs> and you, you worked at that and you were, it, was, it was intentional. Talk to us a bit about what that, why that's so important and how you went about doing it. Okay, I'd be glad to. Well, I spend two uh, chapters in the book about uh, on building teams and what teams mean and another whole chapter on building culture. So that's, that's really in my section of the book called Advanced Leadership. So obviously I feel it's important. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can run a large organization. I'll, I'll say it even more strongly. I don't think you can have a, a good basketball team or a good student committee unless you understand the dynamics of a team. And that, that is very doable, but it requires attention. Uh, there was seldom a day, I guess there might have been a crisis or two that got in our way, but there was seldom a day when I didn't think about what more can I do to build my team. And there are, there are lots of steps in that, and I won't go through all of them unless you ask me questions mm-hmm. about them. But they, uh, they start with getting the right people on the team, Uh, Many great leaders don't pay attention to the hiring process. They don't pay attention to why they're hiring somebody. They don't do their diligence and homework. Uh, They don't find out the background of the person. So when you, you know, when you need a six foot nine center who can uh, score 30 points a game from in close and you hire somebody who's 5'10", (laughs) guess what? That team is going to be missing something. (laughs) So it starts with hiring, but even more important than hiring is how how they work together Mm -hmm. and and whether they trust each other and whether they protect each other, Mm -hmm. whether they support each other. If you can do those things and build the trust and then focus on um, what what the team is trying to achieve and and get everybody on the same page, uh, you're going to be able to do uh, much, much more than any individual can ever do. Now that takes time. When I came to East Carolina in the spring of uh, 2004, we'd had some rough years in leadership. I thought the university had huge strengths and a really a paucity of leadership. Mm-hmm. So it took at least three years to find the people, probably more like four years, to find the people to build a team. We had to do that selection process to get the team uh, there in place and then get them working together mm-hmm. and uh, you were a huge part of that along with many other people but once we did that servant leadership becomes uh, not easy I wouldn't say anything's ever easy but it becomes a joy it becomes fun to do because you can let the team go uh, and you still have to be their blindside blocker mm-hmm. which means you have to protect them when the bad guys go after them and a lot of people don't understand how frequently that occurs yes. <laughs> But if you don't do that, it's not going to happen. That's, right. uh, that's one of your key jobs. It's more the protection and letting, letting them do what they're mm-hmm. good at mm-hmm. than it is telling them what to do. Toward the end of my time, uh, I didn't make many decisions or tell anybody what to do. I said, we have a problem or we have an opportunity or we have a goal to reach. Let's get there. How do we get there? <laughs> and uh, let uh, people like yourself and Marilyn Shear and Rick Nice Wonder and many others find the path to get there. So one of the things you had us doing uh, quite a bit was um, we would have these retreats <laughs> and we would have books to read. Yeah. So you're really, you were very focused in on making sure that there was this common read and a common experience. Mm-hmm. Why is that, why was that so important? Um, I remember some of those retreats and conversations <laughs> we had. They were, in, they were it, it sticks with me today, well, actually. So. Well, and I make a big point out of toxicity, which is really organizational toxicity mm-hmm. in my book. If you have organizational toxicity, sometimes in, a, in an area of the organization, uh, let's say it's in the provost's office, if you have one person who believes they're more important than everybody else, it can drain the energy out of the entire group of people. Mm-hmm. If you have the opposite case, somebody with energy and who has a all-for-one kind of a mentality, it's the opposite. It energizes everybody. So. Uh, I found that it was just tremendously easy for for good people, smart people, people that wanted to be successful, to not focus on the right things or not have the courage to do something hard. Uh, In a public agency, as we all know, 
uh, because of lawyers and employment law, mm -hmm. it's hard to get rid of somebody. I mean, there's all kinds of protections. Mm -hmm. uh, people often ask me, you know, when we had a bad apple, why didn't you get rid of that person? So I had to explain tenure and, yeah. uh, and past precedent yes. and what happened at University of Charlotte mm -hmm. and all these kinds of things because they all affect you. But that shouldn't, uh, that shouldn't keep people from getting rid of the bad apples and building the people who really want to be part of the team. So most of my readings were about focusing on those things that we really need to do. You may not remember, but you probably remember a book that I assigned on called Death by Meetings. And that was all the mistakes that get made in a meeting of 15 people. And, um, you know, I went to thousands of meetings in my time, climbing ladders and so on. And those mistakes are not rare, they're very common. Mm -hmm. But you don't have to make them. Right. I mean, let's do the right things. Let's focus on the most important issue first. Let's get that solved. And if we don't get to the other nine, mm -hmm. there'll be time mm -hmm. for that. So I wanted people to have some common understanding and I found that 90% of our leadership team just ate that stuff up with a spoon. They wanted, they wanted to know how we can work together. Right. That's what it's about. Yeah, well, uh, you, um there were lessons you taught without, um, I don't think, for me personally, right? At the time, I didn't know they were lessons, but it wasn't a wagging of the finger, right? <laughs> it was never that. Um, it was always in a, in a practical way, as you talk about with the book. And so those things we can continue to do. Yeah. How, how does one, um, I know there are a lot of mistakes along the way, but how, how did you use those mistakes to become this wonderful leader that, <laughs> that we all say you are? <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, I think the way to be a good leader is to make a hundred mistakes early on and, and learn from them. Great <laughs> leaders are learners and they, they learn from what they do wrong. I certainly had my share. I, I'm not gonna talk about any of them. They're too hard to talk about. But. <laughs> Uh, I came actually at ECU in 2004 with a list of things I swore I would never do. Okay. <laughs> uh, and that was based on especially a couple really bad organizational situations I was in. And you know, that's, uh, I wasn't 100% successful on that, but that's a good thing to, to know why people, uh, Phil Dubois at Charlotte had a great mm -hmm. phrase for that. I think he called it career limiting behaviors. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. uh, you want people to be with you and you want, you want them to be energized to solve problems and to realize opportunities. You don't want them afraid of what, they're, of what they might do or the repercussions of it, mm -hmm. or you don't want them afraid of losing their job or being embarrassed publicly. Uh, those, but those things happen all the time. I've, I've watched them happen in large, public meetings, they're just as destructive. They're, that's the toxicity of an organization. So number one, I learned the hard way. Uh, number two, I had some unusually gifted uh, mentors and they all believed in a simple principle and that was humanity. Uh, this is not rocket science, but they treated people like they wanted to be treated. That doesn't mean they shied away from pointing out when they when they didn't do things right. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget a meeting early on when uh, I was the associate director of a program in Oklahoma and my, the guy that hired me had come back and he was in a meeting with me and I was not, not doing well. And he said, may I talk to you for a minute <laughs> after the meeting? And he said, uh, Steve, I think the world of you, but that was not your best moment. <laughs> okay. and, and he's still my mentor. I, yeah. I can call him up this afternoon mm -hmm. and say, Don, his name's Don Cash, he's in chapter five there, okay. and say, Don, I have a problem. Will you talk to me? And he'll spend as much time as I need. So humanity is telling the truth. That's really when you get down to what mentorship and coaching is, it's telling the truth mm -hmm. and then teaching how to do things better or giving them experiences so that they can learn how to do it better. But it's also based on humanity. You know, it's, it's, it's whether people, whether you can look somebody in the eye and say, you're gonna be tremendously successful, but you better stop or think about one certain behavior. We all have those behaviors. Yes, yes. <laughs> None of us are immune from that. Right. But the worst situations I've ever been in are when people had no interpersonal skills or didn't care about their relationships, had no emotional intelligence on how the other person was seeing them. And the best I've been in, Chuck Middleton at uh, Bowling Green State University, Tom Ross at the mm -hmm. University of North Carolina, Bill Friday, who you know well. Uh, there's no better people than Tom Ross and Bill Friday in terms of how they interact with people. People want to be around them. Mm -hmm. They want to learn from them. They want to be able to go up 
to a Chuck Milton and say, Chuck, why did you do that? He had a reason for doing it, and he'll tell you. (laughs) But it's all based upon building the people. Organizations are about people. Mm -hmm. And and if you don't understand that, you're never going to build good teams. And and then on the same token, you're not going to let those teams build your culture, which is really going to be the legacy that you leave for it. So what do you think your, um, before I get to the the legacy and cultural piece, (laughs) so higher ed is in... um, kind of a tailspin, I think, particularly public higher education. Under siege, maybe. <laughs> yes, under siege, right? Um, what, what does higher ed need from a leadership perspective to be able to, to navigate all of this? Yeah, that was one of the reasons I wrote the book. I, I'm hoping that uh, people, good people, uh, and that's not just the ones with the highest IQ, it's the ones with humanity, as mm-hmm. we just spoke about, right. will go into higher education. They don't need the necessarily be have aspiration to be a chancellor but maybe they want to be a department chair in a very good department maybe they want to be a dean maybe they want to direct athletics or whatever so we need we need better people we need good people to lead uh, uh, lead academe I'm not sure that our search processes look for the right things I'd be glad to talk about the three things that I tried to look for the three things I found in you and and others but uh, higher ed is, is under siege, number one, because you don't have enough of those leaders. Number two, because they don't lead from values. Mm-hmm. I think uh, the values of integrity, courage, and responsibility have to be the first three that higher ed needs. And then I think that what I hear out there all the time when I talk to people in this community or little Washington where I live or in Washington, D.C., uh, they, they want higher ed leaders to address the major issues in front of us. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they're rocket science. I think there are four or five of them. There's, you know, you find some people with a list of 12 or 20 or 30. But I talk in Chapter 10 about four issues that our leaders have to address. They have to address the cost of education. We're not doing a good, good enough job on that. Mm-hmm. We believe that the old uh, golden era when money was always available will last forever. It's long gone. Yes. We have to address safety on campus, mm-hmm. especially sexual harassment. Right. Universities have done, not ECU, ECU has mm-hmm. done a good job on that, but other universities mm-hmm. have to address that. They have to address this crazy thing called the entertainment industry, yes. which is athletics. Uh, the, the tail cannot wag the dog, and yet uh, everybody gives that lip service, mm-hmm. but look around the campus, mm-hmm. look around the country. Yes. But do you mm-hmm. think Oklahoma and Texas care more about academics or athletics? I can t- give you an answer to that. Exactly. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. They, they have to address that. Mm-hmm. So, um, and there's one I'm forgetting temporarily, but those kind of, uh, uh, people want leaders to address issues. Mm-hmm. All of those questions are hard ones to deal with. Uh, I don't think we solved any of those, but we sure made progress mm-hmm. on doing a better job right. of making sure that the right values mm-hmm. were out front and the right priorities were out front. Right. So I, th- I think to get closer to those things, Leaders need those strong values, and they, they have to have great teams. So now you, your value, the three values that you're saying leaders need are integrity, the courage to make, to, to make the hard calls. To make the hard calls. And the third one? Was responsibility. But I don't want to, that's, that's one of the problems with the literature. You know, you have seven habits of effective people and <laughs> ten things you have to do and five things you never should do. Right. And all that's just a bunch of malarkey. I mean, <laughs> what, what you have to have, I think, is a huge toolkit of skills, competencies, values, experiences. Mm-hmm. So it's not just three values. Mm-hmm. I, I'm more, I'm closer to Bobby Brown that you need Aunt Nellie's 11 or 12 mm-hmm. values and you can't forget them. Right. We had a great colleague, Ron Mitchelson, who believed in respect. Yes. If respect mm-hmm. isn't part of your horizon, mm-hmm. if it isn't part of your culture, you're, you're gonna run mm-hmm. into deep troubles. Mm-hmm. But I think that you ha- if you don't have the first three that I mentioned, yes. you have to have integrity, you have, you have to know what responsibility mm-hmm. really means. It means standing up and yeah. saying, I'm gonna get that done or mm-hmm. I'm gonna head in that direction. And then the courage to do it when you get tremendous amount of pushback. I think it starts there, but there's another Correct. 10, mm-hmm. 12, or 15 right. that you have to have. And that's not all you need. You need emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you need teams with strengths that you don't have. Right. Uh, and, and lots of other things we can talk about. All right, so um, what was your favorite moment or moments as chancellor? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had, I had so many, I, I almost uh, hesitate to talk about them, but uh, asking the uh, first class of the School of Dental Medicine to stand up 
uh, at graduation. Uh, I can't even remember the year, Virginia, you probably know, 2014, I'm going to guess maybe. It had to be close to that, Uh the very first class. Very few people, uh, uh, Philip Rogers for sure, and you and Marilyn know what we went through to get there. Mm-hmm. It wasn't um, a linear process where you do A and then B <laughs> and then C. It was a process of ups and downs yeah. and cyclones and uh-huh. uh, Ferris wheels and a whole bunch of things. So, so getting to that point, uh, you know, we the state of North Carolina gave us uh, $90 million for a building and then um, 17 or 18 million dollars to operate that dental school and service learning clinics. Mm-hmm. Every one of those was a fight uh, and we, we couldn't have done it without tremendous level of support all over to do mm-hmm. it. But getting to that point and seeing students with a dental degree. And now I have an honor student who just got yeah. a white coat in dentistry and I, oh, wow. that was equally impactful for me when I uh, it was a virtual ceremony when I saw her get her white coat and uh, she wrote me a nice note about it afterwards. So that that stands right up there, no question about mm-hmm. that. Uh, uh, easy to think about that. You know, doing the right thing. We had 100 uh, cases of, uh, uh, and I'll have one more story if you can oh, permit please. me. Yes, <laughs> go right ahead. We, I think once we formed the team, um, we, we had a uh, reputation and one of our legacies was to do the right thing. When Virginia Tech had that horrible shooting, and again, I don't remember the year, but we played them in their first football game after this. The shooting was in the spring, and we played them, I think, in early September at Blacksburg. And Terry Holland, this was all Terry Holland, he engineered a way to give them uh, a check of about $100,000. We can check the record of that. I may be wrong. I I think it might have been 150, but it was a substantial check. At the time, ECU gave Virginia Tech the largest amount of money of any outside agency. There are a lot of people in the Blacksburg community that gave more, but nobody from outside of Virginia Tech family uh, gave as much as ECU did. Nobody knows how much grief Terry Holland took for for getting that money available. Uh, He took a tremendous amount of pushback on doing that. But um, when he did it, everybody realized it was the right thing to do. Everybody in the stadium stood up and cheered. Mm -hmm. Uh, you can't get better than that. I mean, we were doing something for that school that was uh, unheard. That's humanity. (laughs) That was unheard of. Yes. So one more quick story about a Uh great moment. uh, In one of those uh, retreats you talked about, (laughs) (laughs) I made a big uh, speech, as I recall, that... um, You made a big speech? (laughs) Short. It was short, but it was big. (laughs) And I said, people that serve on my leadership team had to tell me when I was wrong. Mm. And somebody asked, it must have been you, how do we how do we do that? What's the right way to tell you? It's hard to tell a leader mm-hmm. that you, you, know, you can't do that or, yeah. or you're going to be sorry if you do that. And I said, you come into my office and stand on my desk. And if you see me going wrong, it's up to you to say why I'm going wrong. Mm-hmm. Now, if I ignore you, it's all on me after that. I'm to blame for that. Mm-hmm. But if you don't tell me and you knew then I'm going to be talking to you about what, why you can't talk. Right. <laughs> and no, I think nobody believed me. I don't know that very many people, right. you tell me, had heard that kind of blunt Correct. message. Well, it was about a week later when this uh, big Texan who directed our communications, uh, six foot five and uh, kind of a gangly looking yes, guy, but smart yes. as a tack, um, John Durham came into my office and him and, and Han and had a hard time even thinking about uh, what he really wanted to say, but then he finally kind of blurted out, can we pretend that I'm standing on your desk? (laughs) And he told me something really stupid I was about to do. And I I said, John, bless you, you're you're my model of of what I need around me. You need people that can tell you the truth. Uh I've been in 50 positions where people will try to butter you up mm-hmm. and tell you what they think you need to hear, mm-hmm. but not tell you the truth. That is just, uh, that, that is uh, horrible for an organization. Mm-hmm. John had the nerve to come in and tell me, mm-hmm. and later I heard from other people that he went outside and told people yes, that did. it was okay. Yes, he, did. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was serious, uh-huh. you, you can do that. <laughs> And after that, I think we, we just kept building the trust mm-hmm. among the group. Mm-hmm. We, we learned that we could communicate right. with each other. Now, some people, like Marilyn Shearer, took that way too far. <laughs> <laughs> 
I used to learn that when she was in my office at 8 in the morning, I was in deep trouble. Yes, it's not good. <laughs> I think you knew, knew how to do yes, that as well. I learned from Marilyn. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, I, I was going to bring that up, so I'm glad you did. Um, but that's one of the things that I did take away from you, right, and, and started with my leadership team was to say that very thing, to give them permission oh. to please come in and say, pull my coattail, as my mother would yeah, say. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. They have to know you're on their side. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, or else they're not going to tell you what you need to know. But being able to do that is a scary piece, and the, the that first reaction is important. Yeah. Right? It's like yeah. what you did with John. The very first reaction mm -hmm. is, is important. Yeah. Let's go back to humanity for one second because okay. there's another side of that humanity that's, that's equally important or, or almost as important. It's not just that people have to tell you what they're seeing because you don't see what they're seeing. You don't hear everything mm -hmm. they're seeing. If you can break that barrier, teams are possible. Yes. Great teams mm -hmm. are possible. The same is true when you're talking to a subordinate who's not doing very well, mm -hmm. who you want to get better. Or maybe even at that final stage where you have to say, this fit isn't going to work. You, you have to treat them with respect, even though they may not be right for your mm -hmm. team, even though you've got maybe a problem with their behavior. I learned that from Chuck Middleton. Mm -hmm. uh, Chuck Middleton told me that you, you have to create a, a space, an opportunity for them to be honest with you and talk to you. And it usually starts out with saying, uh, Joe, I, I think I've got something wrong or something's not feeling right. Mm -hmm. I think I'm at, I'm at fault here. I, I've got to know how you're saying this. And once, once, they, once, they, ho once they hope that you're not there to, to really chastise them mm -hmm. or fire them right. or move them out or something, uh -huh. they're much more likely to yeah. tell you what's really going That's on. True. And, you know, sometimes they're a little bit at fault, but lots of times it's not just them. It's many yeah. other people. It goes both that, it arrow does. goes both it directions. Goes, I, don't, I don't know. You know. So let's talk about unsuccessful leaders. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, what does that look like? And I've experienced it. We've all experienced it. Yeah. But how does, how does one overcome it? And when I say overcome it, I mean, mm -hmm. one, how do I fix myself, that self-awareness? But two, when I have someone who is a poor leader, how do I help them get better? Yeah. It's, sometimes it can be very hard, especially if the poor leader is everybody's boss. Yeah. Uh, one yeah. Uh, job I had, uh, a colleague of mine, Pat Long, who, again, was one of the best leaders I've ever worked with, uh, formed a prayer group uh, that met every Friday afternoon at 4 p.m. Uh -huh. in the top floor where they could kind of be alone because yeah. they didn't know how to handle the, the anger and the chastisement and the daily disruptions. I mean, there was a lot of negativity and mm. it was sapping everybody's energy. So one thing you can do is you can talk to your the people you're working with and see if they're experiencing the same mm -hmm. thing. But I think about the only effective way of doing that, well, you mentioned there are two effective ways. One is you've got to say, what's, what's my role in this? <laughs> and Pat Long and I used to have lunch uh, once every two weeks and say, you know, how did I do in that meeting? What are you hearing about me? Uh, tell me the worst that you know, and, and I would tell her and she would tell mm -hmm. me, and neither one of us got our back up. Exactly. We wanted to hear that because we trusted each other. Uh -huh. So you have to do those kind of things. Right. But in the end, I think uh, you have, the teams have to confront the, the, the bad leader mm -hmm. or the person that can't get their ego out of the way. Mm -hmm. I've seen that. Mm -hmm. We've all seen that, haven't we? A hundred yes. times. Uh, you and I have both lost members of our of our own leadership team right. because they couldn't mm -hmm. divorce the right decision from their decision. Correct. Those aren't the same it's things. It's not the same. And yeah. you know what? I've seen people that, that were an A on almost every dimension that couldn't get their ego out of the way. Uh -huh. Most of them didn't last very long. I won't mention names, mm -hmm. but most of them didn't last very long. Mm -hmm. Or emotional intelligence is the other is the other part of that where they don't they don't have the ability to see what others see in them or they use all the negative yes. uh, emotions to try right. to get their way. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a long list of them, mm -hmm. but anger, fear, intimidation, insecurity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And as those things become a bigger part of organizational daily life, uh, it's, it's almost like there's an energy sapper gun. Yeah. Is, that such, is that a real word? <laughs> a, <laughs> a, a gun, that, a vacuum <laughs> yes. that, takes all the, that takes all the energy out of, out of the group. It and really does. You stop telling the truth to people. Mm -hmm. You stop being totally devoted yeah. to the end game. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's just things don't work yeah. very often under now, that. One of the things is we were celebrating your retirement that we did for You were glad long. that I was leaving. Yes, I was. <laughs> like, when is he leaving already? <laughs> Get out of here. 
<laughs> but I remember we had a panel discussion, and one of the questions uh, was about uh, what do we fear, and one of my fears was that the team that you built would dissolve. Mm -hmm. You know, not in the sense that we would lose people. That was, but that that concept of team, yeah. of working together, of protecting each other, of yeah. trust, yeah. and working towards that end game, would dissipate. Yeah. And yeah. it's that scared me more yeah. than anything <laughs> else. Yeah. Right. Because in the end, that's the ultimate security blanket. It that, is. That's that's when you know that when you face a renaming of a resident center or a brutal mm -hmm. assault on campus, yes. that you're not in it all by mm -hmm. yourself or mm -hmm. building a new student center. Right. Do we like having this new yes, student exactly. center? It didn't, uh, it happened uh, with you leading from the front, but it happened because a lot of people pitched in That's on that. Exactly right. So that team, uh, part of that's just informal. Mm -hmm. uh, I heard uh, after I left that that team didn't have a formal existence anymore, but informally, people looked out for each other, right. which can be just as important. Mm -hmm. And pr probably the informal side increased because yeah, it wasn't did. formally there. That's right, yeah. all right. So one of the, um, I've heard lots of your stories, um, one of the, and lots <laughs> of your quotes, and one of them that you use a lot is the one from Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how strong the man stumbles, or where the door of, de of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood. That was me most of the time. Yes. <laughs> Why does it re resonate so much with you? Well, I think it's uh, that's all about courage. I think that statement's primarily, not all, but mm -hmm. primarily about courage. It's over 100 years old. I think it's doubly, triply, quadruply true today than it was in 1909 or uh -huh. 1907, whenever Teddy Roosevelt said it. Uh, because of the society we live in, you know, everybody's an instant critic mm -hmm. and everybody has an outlet to, to blame somebody else. Right. And they can be 95% wrong for a bad decision and yet it's easy to get an audience to say, well, these three people are the cause of that problem. You know, in the old days, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, when I knew Margaret Chase Smith, yeah. Margaret Chase Smith never blamed anybody else. She asked the question, what can I do to make mm -hmm. that better? What was my role in right. that? So uh, that that whole statement is is about a couple things. But one, it's uh, it's it's easy to be critical, but it's it that keeps people out of doing things they know they can do or should do. Uh -huh. And by being in the arena, what that means to me is that you're willing to to step forward mm -hmm. when there's a job to be done. You don't have, don't have to have formal authority. Right. Lots of times it's leading in place, saying yes. I want to contribute to that. Mm -hmm. Or I know that's your bailiwick, but I wanna I want to be there uh -huh. in case. Uh, and man, my last five, six, seven years, I had that with a dozen people. Yeah. So uh, you, yeah. you're willing to step forward. You're, mm -hmm. you're willing to take the risk. You're willing to say, here's the right thing to do, and we're going to do everything we can to get there. You know, it took us, I'm sure you remember, uh, I, as I counted it the other day, uh, over two years to get the ACOC renaming done. Over two years, yeah. because we were never in the majority on right. what should be done there. Mm -hmm. But we all had, a, in the leadership team, a sense of what needed to be done. Mm -hmm. So getting in the arena is part about asking the right questions and saying what's the right thing to do. But it's also just being willing to say, okay, I'm, I'll be a part of the team. I'll step up to yeah. that. And uh, today, I don't really blame anybody for saying, uh-uh. Exactly. <laughs> you know, yeah. in my honor students, I probably get that question, and it's oftentimes after they've left the course, when they've come back and said, <laughs> I need your advice or whatever. How do people get in the public arena? It's just guaranteed uh, pain. It's just guaranteed criticism. How do you take the constant criticism? I have a neighbor now who's a city manager. Uh -huh. That may be the one occupation where you get more criticism than a chancellor or a vice chancellor Correct. of a university. Yes. Uh, and I, <laughs> Woody and I talk about that frequently. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, uh, it, it's, it's something that takes, I think, experience and, yeah. and a team to, uh, to get through those times. So, so let's talk about that, because Simon Sinek talks about that, right? Start with the why. Start with the why, right? yeah. So what, what is your why as a leader? <laughs> 
uh, I saw that on the question, and I didn't have a good answer <laughs> when I went through it, and I still don't have a good answer. Uh, my answer is uh, I like his book on the infinite game even better. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to try to change that. <laughs> I, I can't get away with that. <laughs> Not here. Cynic <laughs> is a smart guy about yeah. leadership, and he's mm-hmm. worth uh, doing yes. that. My why, I think, was because in the beginning, especially in graduate school, mm-hmm. But after I left graduate school and as I got to the, when I got to the University of Maine, I saw people not, it was either not having a why at all or not expressing the whys that they were doing things. What that usually meant, not always, but what it usually meant was one of two things. Either I'm in it for myself, mm-hmm. before anything else happens good, I'm going to cover myself. So almost like the leader of a small a Mediterranean country saying, I'm going to drain every resource out of this nation, mm-hmm. and if there's any left, I hope you all like right. me. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. So it's either about themselves, self-aggrandizement or money, mm-hmm. or it's about um, uh, their egos or yeah. what, whatever it might be, or about politics. It's about oftentimes about politics. Yeah. University of Maine had a had a, an abundance of people that only cared about politics. One who wasn't was Judy Bailey, and I hired her at yes, uh, East Carolina right. University. Uh-huh. So I, I, I think my why, to, for a very long-winded, uh, convoluted, uh, circular answer, is because I knew uh, people could do better than that. I knew that there were a lot of people that, that didn't want just the political uh, easy thing to do, just the thing that you know, placated maybe a board of governors mm-hmm. member if that was the case. Mm-hmm. That, that that was seldom the right thing to right. do. It was communicating about how you saw a reality and then trying to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And I, I had some great mentors that uh, led by example in how to do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's always, and particularly in, at a public institution, there are a lot of stakeholders, but in any organization that's the case. Um, <laughs> how do you manage the politics <laughs> of all of those people who, who all know how to do it better than you. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's impossible. <laughs> uh, I had a, uh, I, thankfully I had, before I started at ECU in about April of 2004, I went to a, that professional society, not APLU, but the other one, um, the, Sol- no, um, the, other, the other one for smaller schools. Uh, A-P-O-U-A-C-E. Um, uh, it was the National ASCU. Association of ASCU. That was the one. Yes. Well, they, they held a, a week-long training session uh-huh. for people newly elected or appointed uh, as presidents. Yes. Uh-huh. And I went to that, um, forget where it was, but I'll never forget the, the person who was assigned to me. They not only had a lot of group sessions, but one current president, most of the time they had served 10 or more mm-hmm. years, was assigned to me. And at first I didn't think he had anything for me. He was from Northern Kentucky University. And at my age, I'm gonna forget his name, but not, right. not his character, not his humanity. Uh-huh. And he took a liking to me, or he okay. took an interest, and he said, this guy needs help. <laughs> <laughs> And spent a lot of time with me, and uh, and I, I was just extraordinarily uh, lucky to get that uh, before I even started, and I, I learned a lot about okay. other kinds of things. So repeat your question, because uh, I was going to get to something. Okay, no problem. About how do you manage all the stakeholders? All the stakeholders, yeah, and he was especially good on the stakeholders, uh-huh. and I was losing sight of that for a minute. But he had a little uh, handout a little, in a lecture that he called the fabric of the university. Okay. It didn't come from him, it came from somebody else. but. Uh, the fabric of the university was the interweaving of all the constituencies. Mm-hmm. And some were horizontal, some were vertical, and some were cutting across. Okay. And he said, at a minimum, there's a dozen constituencies that you have to pay attention to. And if you, if you ignore any one of them, you're going to get in trouble mm-hmm. sooner or later. But here's the rub. You can't pay an equal amount of attention to every one of them because there's not enough hours in the mm-hmm. day. So I thought a lot about that, and I, I kind of rank ordered the constituencies okay. and said this year, like maybe the uh, first year that I was president, I'm going to make sure that my trustees mm-hmm. get a tremendous amount of attention. Right. Another constituency is the Board of Governors, mm-hmm. but at that time it was really the president of the system, right. and for me that started with Molly, Molly mm-hmm. Broad. So I said, I'm going to make sure that Molly knows what I'm doing. Exactly. <laughs> uh-huh. And third, because there had been so much turmoil between 
administrators and faculty. I said in the first year or two, I was going to really pay attention to the faculty mm -hmm. because they were really shooting at a couple of predecessors right. of mine. Uh -huh. And it wasn't doing the university any good to right. have kind of public mm -hmm. fighting over mm -hmm. it. So I took three and I said, I'm really going to pay attention to them. But I soon learned that uh, when you pay a lot of attention to three, uh, there are going to be five others that are saying, you're ignoring me. Right. That's right. <laughs> so every year I tried to reorder those okay. priorities. And then here's, here's the, really the only way you can really get at it, in my view. I, I think that's an important mm -hmm. thing for the chancellor to do because every one of your constituencies believes that you're not spending enough time correct. with them, and they're correct. Mm -hmm. That's correct. Mm -hmm. But it gets back to the team. The team has to do that. Uh, you were my, mm -hmm. among other things, my Greenville community. Yes. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. constituency mm -hmm. and if I wanted to know what was going right. on or if I said we got a problem here yes. you'd take me usually by dragging and screaming <laughs> and making sure I was talking to That's those right. people or if it was the parents council right. uh, uh -huh. or whatever it was yeah. uh, you had to have mm -hmm. you had to have people that understood that constituency mm -hmm. and I think every one of my vice chancellors knew at least one usually right. multiple constituencies uh -huh. and could help me with That's that right. and Hopefully, they told me when there was a fire out there. <laughs> uh -huh. So that, I, it's all about teams. To, <laughs> yeah. that, that kept the constituent con connected to the institution exactly. and to you. Exactly yeah. right. Exactly okay. right. And they would talk usually more often to the constituency. All right. And that was tremendously helpful. So um, how, how, how have you, what have you done? Let me, let me rephrase this. Let me think this through. Um, <laughs> What have you done since retirement to keep the skill level and the competency sharp? <laughs> wow, I, I honestly don't think they're as sharp as they okay. were. I really don't. Uh, somebody asked me not too long ago what I, I think it might have been uh, prior to Philip, <laughs> maybe when we had a couple of uh, problems <laughs> along the way, would I be willing to come back? And I said, my heart's all there. But, but I'm not sure my energy level is there. It's, it's partly about energy level. Right. Uh, if, if you don't have the energy to take the call at 10 o'clock at night, yeah. or the next morning when Margaret Spelling calls you and says, um, you know, I think she called at eight in the morning on a Sunday, tell me about the assault on campus. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. If you don't have the energy and the, and the and the knowledge that it's going to happen, mm -hmm. uh, you, you're not going to do it right. Yeah. You're, you're going to look for excuses. Mm -hmm. You're going to say, oh, it's all Virginia's fault uh -huh. or whatever, yes. rather than ask the right question, mm -hmm. uh, which is, we, we had a real problem here, and I can use your help. Mm -hmm. Here's how we're initially thinking about mm -hmm. it. So I, I, I think uh, you ask about skills, but I think it was more, do I, do I have the, you know, some weeks, you know, as well as I know, some weeks it's not just five days, it's seven days. Right. It's not just eight hours, yeah. it's 13, uh -huh. 14, 15 uh -huh. hours. And then the next day can even be harder if mm -hmm. stuff happens. That's right. <laughs> so you, you've got to have, you've, you've got to be totally committed to the institution. I like to believe that when I stepped down, I spent 12 years of being totally committed to my people first, mm -hmm. uh, but also to the institution. Mm -hmm. When, when you can't, and I, I didn't step down for that reason. We really stepped down because of our son. But mm -hmm. if you don't think you have that, I think it's a mistake. Mm -hmm. I think the skills probably are renewable or, <laughs> or refurbishable. But uh, if I, if somebody didn't give me a choice and said, Ballard, you're the chancellor for the next year, I would find 15 people that, that I trusted mm -hmm. and who trusted me, mm -hmm. and I would form them immediately. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't, I was pretty... Uh, I was pretty cautious about that in 2004. Yeah. Austin and I, my chief of staff, knew what we had to do. Uh -huh. I think we ended up with one of the original 19. Yeah. But we were pretty cautious. Uh, I would, I wouldn't be cautious anymore. <laughs> and it's not because of, it's not because of, uh, you know, I think firing is a tough thing to do and not often a bad thing to do. But it, it's, it's because the fit isn't there, or the group isn't there, or the team isn't right. there. There's not a team yeah. atmosphere. You know, one of the things I, I. Um, I admired about you once you stepped down was you stepped down <laughs> yeah right when all and, and ECU had some some turbulent years there with leadership we did and you stayed out of the fray yeah right it, yeah. it was I, I was amazed by that you know and even <laughs> when people tried to bring you into the fray you were very um, um, strategic in how you stayed out of it <laughs> yeah 
I tried to be. I did get in the housing fray, the chancellor's residence uh, yes. fray, because yes. I thought that was as passionate as it was. I understood that, but mm -hmm. it wasn't. It wasn't leading to the right, right. set of questions or answers. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I really felt like um, that that any new person, be they an A plus or less than an A plus, didn't didn't need the former guy telling them what to do. Mm -hmm. Dick Aiken did that for me, and mm -hmm. I still thank Dick today for. Yeah. Uh, Dick once uh, said, uh, anytime you need to talk to me, I'm available. Uh, lunch is almost always open for me. Let mm -hmm. me know, mm -hmm. but I'm not going to interfere yeah. in things. And, you know, when you, Dick was around 14 years, mm -hmm. I was around for 12. You, you know a lot of people, and you've got a lot of contacts. And I, I don't think the new person uh, should be burdened with that unless they ask for it. Mm -hmm. If they ask for it, I, I was all there. Philip mm -hmm. talked to me before he actually got paid. Exactly. And I was, I'm was i still willing to help at any time. Mm -hmm. And he knows that. But I, I just thought it was the right thing to do. It wasn't easy to do when I saw, <laughs> when I saw perhaps decisions going the, the wrong direction uh -huh. or uh, questioned, oh, wow, why did you hire that person? Uh -huh. <laughs> exactly. But it, it wouldn't, uh, wasn't, my, wasn't my authority. It wasn't my right. purview. Still, I'm impressed with it. <laughs> so, um, speaking of Austin Bunch, a friend, <laughs> of, the, friend of ours, um, friend was a of friend ours. of ours and of, of this institution. Yeah. Um, Austin talked a lot about followership. Yeah. Right? Which yeah. people seem to forget. Yeah. But it has a place in this whole notion it, of concept of leadership. Yeah. How do you see it? I, uh, Austin had it exactly right, I thought. Uh, I, and I think. We talk about the great leaders, uh, the really good ones, the Tom Rosses, mm -hmm. the Margaret Chase Smiths, the yeah. uh, Bill Fridays, and so on. Th they understand followership as well as they do leadership. Followership means you're going to get to the right place, the right path, or the right decision, and it doesn't have to be yours. You know, there are, there are people at the top of an organization, I won't mention names, but we all could, that says, I'm the decision maker. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm the decider. This is my choice. This is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the one that has to do that. That, that almost always leads to some mistakes mm -hmm. and often some horrible yeah. career-limiting yes, mistakes. The question is, what's the right answer, and then how do you get there? Yeah. Uh, I knew, just to raise something that's still near and dear to my heart, that uh, a right answer before I left the chancellorship is that we had to have this new student center. <laughs> that's right. And we had about seven or eight or nine, you probably know better than I, years where we didn't make any progress right. on that. We had all kinds of mm -hmm. fits and starts. Mm -hmm. But I knew that we had to get there. Mm -hmm. Then my second realization was, I don't think I can get there by myself. Uh -huh. <laughs> so I think in your first meeting, yes. or very close it to the first. time that we hired you, yep. the, <laughs> the student center is at the top. Yes. And then in addition to that, you know, we had to have somebody that could talk, mm -hmm. that could talk the money, money. side of it. Yes. We had Rick Nicewander. Yes, and then we had parents, mm -hmm. councils, and others that were very supportive, right. uh -huh. legislators, oh, yes. John Cooper, others, uh -huh. who were tremendous helps. But... Um, you know, those are, those are how you get to the good things, mm -hmm. is you, you realize those kind of things. Yeah. No, I remember that conversation. I said, what do you want me to prioritize? <laughs> and I think you're, I'm speaking verbatim, I think. Uh, you need to get the, the, the student center built. Your job depends on it. I was like, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> you know, when I got toward the end, I, I could be brutally oh, honest. Yes, you were. <laughs> I told Ron Mitchelson that if you act like you're an interim, you will be. <laughs> he never forgot that either. So <laughs> He didn't say interim for many things too long, so. <laughs> One of the things uh, I also remember was an evaluation you did for me. And in it, uh, you said something about, it was, it was a basketball metaphor. And you talked about passing the ball, right? Those little things still res resonate with me still. Yeah. And I think that's a part about the, the leader being the, an effective leader. Yeah. The trust is there, but you give it to the person in a way that it makes sense and can stay with them. I'll never forget, and Rick might be mad at me, but I'll never forget you really watching Rick and me have a very healthy conversation. You, you two could do that. <laughs> and you stood there and you and you watched it and then you gave, you talked to both of us about what had transpired and how we needed to get this together. And the, the beauty of, but the beauty that Rick and I could have that healthy conversation was because of the team that you built. 
Yeah. Right? And that he and I trusted and respected each other. Yeah, it all starts with trust. Yes. That's right. <laughs> and we could do that. And, yeah. the, when, and when we finish, we could say, love you. <laughs> and, we, and, and Rick and I, pre-COVID, would hug all the time. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And how many organizations have we been in where that was not possible? Exactly. If you had that kind of a conversation with a colleague, it might be the last time they ever talked to you. That's right. <laughs> Which is, is uh, it's not just bad, it's it's destructive. It is. For yeah. the for the organization. Yeah. I felt at the annual evaluation time, and I tried to hold myself accountable to it, mm -hmm. was that we all have to identify at least one thing we can get better at. That continuous improvement was the part of being even a better leader and building your culture. And if other people saw that, if the people that reported to you saw that you were willing to ask That's that right. question, and the people reporting to me mm -hmm. saw that, then you were gradually gonna build a culture where yeah. people wanted to get better all the time. Not just get more on higher step on the ladder. Right. Uh, that's kind of a different question, mm -hmm. <laughs> but how can I be a better leader? Yeah. So I, uh, I might have gone overboard on that, but I tried to include <laughs> that on every annual evaluation. No, it, it was quite helpful, <laughs> um, and I, I missed that, to tell you the truth. <laughs> All right, so there, you talked about courage, uh, and you need to be a courageous leader. Um, what's, talk about an incident, and you can give as much or as few <laughs> details as you like, of an incident um, that you tackled that required courage, mm -hmm. and where did you find that courage yeah well first let me uh, say that I, I had a great mentor on this and all my students say I use her name too much but Margaret Chase yeah. Smith was the only woman senator in June of 1950 and she stood up to Joseph McCarthy when the 99 men who had been there 20 30 40 years mm -hmm. in a few cases were, were afraid to yeah. so how does a woman from Skowhegan Maine with no seniority who thought this was the end of her Senate career uh -huh. Uh, who had no formal education to mm -hmm. speak of. How does she find the courage to do that when when the people with all the seniority, all the power, controlled all the money, were hiding? Mm -hmm. We're just pure, flat out hiding. So uh, I, I, what a lesson that was for me to say, if she can do that, uh, from the state of Maine, uh, mm -hmm. when there wasn't even a woman's bathroom in the United States Senate, I mean, she had no perks at all, zero, right. and she got, excoriated for mm -hmm. her remarks for a while by the mm -hmm. Chicago Tribune and many others. Yeah. I, I said, if, if she can do that. A mere I, woman. A mere woman, is, uh, she, was, uh, she always felt that uh -huh. was a badge of courage. Yes. <laughs> she had, you know, women today would just go nuts if, if a newspaper said that. <laughs> she had it in a big banner across her library. Uh -huh. A mere yes. woman calls McCarthy. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I love so, that. Yeah, so she was a mere woman already. <laughs> But I, I felt the least I could do uh, in a different arena was to try to tell the truth and tr try, to, try to find out the answer, what's the right thing to do here? So uh, I think uh, probably the one that uh, there was the most controversy about was either hiring my first athletic director or uh, renaming the residency after we went through two years. Uh -huh. As you uh, quite well know, I think you took maybe more uh, sniper shots than I did, or at least as many. Yes. Uh, there, were, there were hundreds of people sniping at us. Mm -hmm. I still felt that it was about 60-40 against the position that we wanted. Mm -hmm. But on the 40 side, which I thought was the right answer, we had the students on our side. Mm -hmm. And we, we made darn sure that we kept talking to them. Right. And we had meetings with uh, trustee members and 50 students there, right. 48 of whom mm -hmm. uh, were saying what we needed to do. Right. So, um, uh, you know, having the courage to do that, I think, came from knowing that um, you, you, you can do the right thing and still survive. Mm -hmm. uh, there were many times when people were threatening me that this would be my last decision. Yes. <laughs> and it didn't turn out to That's be. <laughs> But you know, they uh, uh, certain members of the board of trustees in 2004 had believed that they had found the right athletic director to replace uh, the guy that went to Las Vegas and then to Marshall Hamrick. Hamrick was that his name? And because we had an interim at the time when I came here, and I was assured by the vice chair of the board, who was chairing the athletic committee, that if I found if I took anyone in the pool, they would support it uh, mm -hmm. if I, as long as I had a reason. Mm -hmm. So I interviewed all three finalists, and I, and I said, the one I won't hire in any circumstances is the one that certain people had already decided. Okay. And I'd interviewed that person twice. I knew exactly uh, whether that person would be a fit with me mm -hmm. and determined it wouldn't be a fit. Okay. The other two were uh, mm -hmm. uh, 
reasonable. Mm -hmm. And the one that I wanted uh, ended up being the AD at Florida State. Mm -hmm. So wait a minute, that probably, that person probably was okay. But certain members of the board said, well, that person's not from the East and we don't think he knows ECU and and we're not gonna, it was my choice on who to hire, but Mm -hmm. they had to approve his contract. Mm -hmm. So they had a veto power. Uh, they couldn't tell me I had to hire Correct. the number three candidate, mm-hmm. but they had a veto over yeah. my candidate. So uh, I had to go back to the drawing board. Uh, I had this uh, horrible person, according to some people, Ricky Hart, who's been an A-plus uh, AD at SMU now okay. for 10 years, yeah. something like that. Uh-huh. Uh, had him, and they wouldn't. Uh, he was from Chapel Hill, so I couldn't do that. And uh, Jim Talton, the board chair at the time, said, Steve, we got a real problem here. Mm-hmm. And I honestly thought, based on what he was saying and some others, that this was all before this happening in March of April. My uh, chancellorship started in June 1st of 2004. Mm-hmm. I thought to myself, Jim never said this, don't get me wrong, that I, I might lose my job before it started. That's how mad people were that I wouldn't accept this mm-hmm. number three person okay. who is a political person, mm-hmm. not a... It didn't know the dimensions of what being a real AD was. Finally, and and I'll never, uh, in terms of telling stories, I'll never forget what David Brody meant to me on this. On the day of the board meeting where I was planned, and I told Jim Talton and David Brody that I was going to bring Ricky Hart's name forward, Mm -hmm. because I I really believe in Ricky Hart. He would have been a great AD Mm -hmm. here. That, uh, Steve, you can't win this one at this point. Uh, no decision is a much better decision. Mm. Boy, that's hard for a guy like me to, right. yes. <laughs> to listen to that. Uh-huh. But he said, I said, what do you mean a no decision? He said, let's start all over. The search committee didn't do you any good. Mm-hmm. They talked to everybody in the state, or some of them, a few of them did. Uh, they, didn't, they weren't on your team. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't out there finding who a good AD would be. Let's start all over. A new search committee, you're the chair of it. Uh, a new search consultant. Mm-hmm. I found Chuck Ninus, who knew every mm-hmm. person almost in the country that was involved with college athletics. And Jim and Steve Schofany and I and Bob Gretchen are all going to support you if we start everything over. But okay. don't, don't push anybody in this pool. It was wrong mm-hmm. from the start. Most of us now realize we made a mistake. And I said, okay, I got to think about this, David. I'll call you before the board meeting. And it was getting close. I mean, right. minutes before the board meeting. I said, you're right, David. Yeah. If you, will you raise that and I'll support it? Yeah. And he did, and we did. And, okay. and the next day we started a new search. Mm-hmm. I found Chuck Ninus to lead us yeah. toward the right direction. Mm-hmm. And Chuck was the one that ultimately found Terry Holland. There's much more to that story. Yeah. <laughs> but we got out of the, of mm-hmm. the mess. We got out of the uh, total warfare that we were in and started asking the right question. Yes. So that that was extremely controversial. So took courage, for (laughs) sure, but also took taking the advice and being willing to change courses in this stream. It did. It did. You Mm -hmm. still have to listen when when you think you know the right thing Uh to do. I mean, the two ADs I found, there's no question in my mind, they could have done a really good job. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we found Terry Holland, and uh, I'm not sure there's ever been a better fit for athletic director exactly. than Terry Holland was at East Carolina exactly. University. Yeah, he he did he had he has the gift that's for sure. He had the gift. He had presence. He yes. had a national network. Mm-hmm. Uh, he knew what real success was. Mm-hmm. He turned a football program from two and nine to the next year five and seven, uh-huh. and then a bowl game right. five four or five straight years. Yes, so indeed. he knew his business. Yes, <laughs> So I could go on talking to you all day, right? <laughs> and I think people would listen to you. So we're going to bring you back okay. at some point all to right. continue the conversation. Just... We are we are great uh, grateful for you in many many ways, oh, Dr. Steve that. Ballard. We I appreciate, appreciate you what you did for ECU in your 12 years, what you're still doing for East Carolina University, and personally, I thank you for being my mentor, my coach, my sponsor, and my friend. Well. I've learned a lot from you. So nice of you to say. My last uh, comment is that if leaders don't learn as much from their people, uh, they're not mm-hmm. great leaders. They may be successful, mm-hmm. but they're not doing what they should do. And I felt that I, certainly it was true for me. Oh, thank you. Greatly <laughs> appreciate that. Thank you, Dr. Ballard, for being with us today and sharing your experiences, your wisdom, your lessons learned, and wonderful, wonderful stories and advice. In summation, you've talked a lot about building a dynamic team and the importance of that team and how within that team you have to have trust, you have to have respect, 
and that team has to be able to talk honestly with each other to protect and support each other as they work together for the common goals. That is important regardless of the organization, regardless of size or whatever the organization is actually doing. You also shared with us the importance of having emotional intelligence and to being self-aware. That's a theme we've heard um, consistently throughout the podcast sessions. And then there's the notion of humanity, of being humane and respectful and understanding and treating people as, they, as we should. And then the, the three kind of foundational values of leadership, knowing that there are many, many more, but the three foundational values being integrity, courage, and responsibility and how all of those three things actually build a leader when you add the additional values to it. There are so many lessons that we've learned from you in listening to you today and there's so much more and we will have you back to continue this conversation. We say congratulations again to you on your publication of your new book, Great Leaders Are Great People, A Practical Guide to Public Service and Everyday Leadership. Thank you all again for joining me today as we have been speaking with Dr. Steve Ballard, former Chancellor of East Carolina University and my personal friend and mentor. Join me for the next episode as we continue down this journey of becoming effective and successful leaders. Thank you for joining Dr. Virginia Hardy today for Leadership Unscripted, navigating your leadership journey. Are you looking to make the leap from your current role to a leadership position? or you are a current leader looking to sharpen your edge? Join Dr. Virginia Hardy for new podcast episodes each month for more leadership content meant to inspire, empower, and influence your individual path on leadership development.